Welcome to Terminal Talk, the podcast around mainframes and mainframe related topics. I think people really tune in for the mainframe related topics to be often, uh, to be honest. And we're here at TechU in Washington, D.C. Beautiful Washington, D.C. We, we actually may even be able to get outside at some point. Fingers crossed. In the meantime, we have with us today Mark Rader, who is a mainframe DB2 expert. Wow. <laughs> Although he looks scared now. <laughs> <laughs> we were good right up to that point. Yeah. So um, let's start uh, really simple. What is DB2 and why should I care? And how do I spell it? <laughs> so DB2 is a the brand for a family of relational database products. And the DB2 that I particularly work with is DB2 for ZOS or DB2 for ZOS if you're north of the border. Mm-hmm. And that is the premier relational database product for high transactions and data integrity. There are also DB2s that run on other platforms, um, IBM platforms and other non-IBM platforms, but DB2 for ZOS is the one that I deal with. Was that the first one too? The DB2 was first done on the mainframe and then... So the, the first relational database that IBM came out with was SQLDS, which was actually on the VM platform. Was that DB1? <laughs> no. What we jokingly called DB1 was IMS, huh. in the Information Management System, which was the hierarchical database developed um, as part of the Moonshot program with NASA. Oh, wow. Huh. Um, hierarchical arrangement is really good for things like bill of materials, so if you imagine a car that has a 1,000 parts and each part might have sub-assemblies and each sub-assembly might have little components until you get down to the tiny ball bearings. So each one part might expand to multiple parts. IMS is really great for that sort of thing. A rocket has lots of those <laughs> parts as parts. Um, DB2 is based on a different theory. It's based on relations, which are a mathematical thing that Dr. Codd dreamed up in IBM Research. Um, back at about the same time that IMS was being developed. And we came out with it as a product in the early 80s. SQLDS was the first one from IBM, and then DB2 came directly after, and that ran on what was MVS at the time. So when the idea of relational databases came around, was that based out of a requirement that clients wanted, or was it like, what the heck am I going to use this for? Why are you making a new database? So that it, it actually came out of the requirement that if you're in a hierarchical database or any of the other databases that were on the market at the time, you had to know how your data was structured to be able to retrieve the data. You had to know that this was the root segment and this was a child segment, and the programmer had to be able to navigate through the structure knowing in great detail where each piece was. Uh It was very difficult to understand how different pieces of data might relate to one another. So, for example, might this subassembly be part of two different parts, right? That would be very difficult to understand in a hierarchy. In relational, it's much easier to do a query and be able to relate different parts of your database, the different components or different pieces of data in your database together. Mm-hmm. It's Part of the thing that makes it easier to understand is it's relatively simple, is that it's a collection of tables. So it's two dimensions, right? There's rows and there's columns. So if I have a table of names... Right, the, the entity I worry about is names. I might have rows with each of our names and then columns with things like um, address or social security number, 
but I better encrypt that. Right. Or, <laughs> or earnings or whatever it is that I'm tracking, uh, insurance premiums, for example. And for a programmer to think about tables is a lot easier to think about. And then I can actually make a query against the tables and look for relationships that I don't understand. I don't have to know specifically which column came, comes before which column to be able to traverse the table. All I need to know is the name of the column in the table, and then I can get the data back. And you can kind of spider backwards from there. I can go in all sorts of directions. <laughs> so the, the whole idea was to make it easier for programmers so they didn't have to know as much about the data in order to get what the information they needed. Correct. When DB2 first came out, it was seen as a query tool, right? IMS was the transaction tool. That's how you got high-volume inserts and fast transaction response time. And DB2 was seen as the product to support decision support, right? Business What we're now calling business analytics. Right. But the idea was, I can query the data really fast with DB2, much faster than with IMS. So let's take the IMS data I care about, and let's put it in a DB2 table, and now I can do a query, and if I don't like it, I tweak the query and get the result back really quick. And over time, DB2 has evolved to be a premier transaction-supporting database system as well as a query-based database system. So how does DB2 on, on uh, I'll adjust, ZOS uh, <laughs> differ from DB2 on, on like a distributed platform? So most of the functions that you can do are the same. The actual code base is a little different. Uh, the development labs for DB2 on ZOS, primarily in San Jose, California, communicate heavily with the labs that develop the DB2 products on the other platforms, and they share a lot of technology. From the programmer's point of view, there are very few differences. Mm -hmm. There are some. But there are fundamentally very few differences. From a database administrator point of view, there are a few more differences. DB2 on ZOS has inherited a lot of the MBS constructs that are now in ZOS or ZOS, and therefore how you manage DB2 on, on Z is a little different than how you manage DB2 on other platforms. Right, because it has to be able to take advantage of the, uh, the uh, uh, coupling facilities and all the stuff. Data sharing. Yeah, data sharing is what I'm getting at. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's true. There, there are quite a number of things that DB2 thinks about on Z that DB2 on other platforms don't have to think about. Okay. For example, in most cases, if you say database to someone who works with a relational database on another platform, that's an instance. That's like a server has a database and that's it. In DB2 on Z, the word database really means a logical collection of tables. And I can cover a wide variety of applications through one set of data in my DB2 subsystem, and I will have multiple databases within that subsystem, all, perhaps all of them logically related to each other, all of them supporting my business. So this is kind of key, right? Because when we think of a database on, on Z, we're not even thinking of an address space or or, or um, a server construct in any way. It's much more logically tied together. Right. Because we're working in the ZOS environment, the actual way we do DB2 on Z is through address spaces. But we can tie a set of address spaces that represent one DB2 subsystem on one server with a set of address spaces on another server 
all going after the same data, which goes back to the data sharing and coupling facility you mentioned before. That's something you can't do on other platforms. Now, how um, cognizant of this does a database administrator need to be? How cognizant of which? Of, of that, of the data constructs, the database constructs. Do they have to understand the address bases or are they kind of abstracted from all that? So this will depend a lot on the role that the individual plays. Programmers don't have to understand anything except table names and column names and then the various verbs in the structured query language that they use to interact with them. Database administrators have to understand things about how those tables are physically implemented. What sort of a table space are they in, right? Uh, are they partitioned by range? Are they partitioned by growth? Do you have multiple tables in one table space? These are all decisions that are physical implement implementation decisions that a database administrator needs to consider. Then you have the system programmer who is actually responsible for the care and feeding of the DB2 subsystem itself, and they have an understanding of each of these things, but they may be more concerned with you know, how do I get, you know, how do I bring in the new release and how do I make all these features available to the programmers and DBAs? And depending on the, the shop, you're going to have different people in those roles. Sometimes one person will have all of those roles. So the, the DB2 tools that are associated with DB2, um, is there one type of industry or a type of customer that's more likely to just go straight to the console versus using like the accessibility GUI type tools? I'll have to think about that one. That's a, that's a good question. There are a wide variety of tools that support DB2. Actually, there are tools for all the different databases that IBM offers. And in the case of DB2, there's one set of what I would call tools that are fundamental utilities. And the utilities are used primarily to support the care and feeding from at a very basic level, right? I'm going to do occasional reorg reorgs for performance. I'm going to do reorgs to handle changes I've made to my database structure, which we sometimes call schema. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to use utilities to handle things like backup and recovery um, in, you know, in case I run into a logical or physical problem with the actual data on disk. I may have to do a recovery, so there are utilities around that. There are also sets of tools that are just about how do I make it easier to analyze my workload? How do I make it easier to find a poor-performing SQL statement and improve it? How do I um, make some of those recovery and, and backup decisions easier to make? So there's, there's uh, think of the tools as onions, right? There's the center, the core, and then there's layers of tools that make each piece a little easier to use, right? You pay a little bit, and it makes your DBAs or programmers more productive. I know Frank really likes those green onions. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> That's why I like DB2, because yeah. I like the onions. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about performance. Like, uh, if we had a segment for this, it would be called uh, Impress Us with Big Numbers. <laughs> but when I, when I presented to the uh, DB2 users group in Washington a couple of months ago, um, I, I heard a couple of numbers about like, you know, transactions per second and uh, how many you know, terabytes of, of volume can be in a database. Can you just tell us a little bit, give us a glimpse into the world of like, what a, data, a DB2 is handling or you know, can handle? Wow. Well, there are... Some of the biggest customers that you all know and recognize from yeah. the newspapers or radio shows and 
Wall Street Journal, whatever, um, are running DV2. Most of the banks, most of the Wall Street firms, major manufacturers, retailers, insurance companies, I've worked with a number of them, both U.S., Canada, and, and other countries around the world. Almost all of them have DB2, and their critical data is in DB2. How big and how fast will vary a lot from customer to customer. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the largest banks in the world in China has, well, just their lock structure is way over two gigabytes in size. Wow. Um, and uh, and that's an esoteric little label that doesn't mean anything to most people, but um, we can support thousands of transactions per second in DB2. Mm-hmm. IMS still has the record. Right. And as far as database size, um, DB2.12, the, the latest release, um, allows you to define up to 128 billion rows in one table. <laughs> and of course, you can have any number of, well, actually, it's not any number, but you have quite a large number of tables to find in one database and so you you know, a number of databases in your in your <laughs> subsystem. So, yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure 128 is the right number. <laughs> wow. But there's a lot. That's a lot of data. Can you talk a little bit about that because you brought it up, the, the locking structure? <clears throat> so one of the key issues with database in general, whether it's DB2 or anything else, is you need to protect the data from two different processes that are running concurrently. If I have a particular row that I'm going to update, let's say my salary is going to be increased. That's a nice scenario I like to think about. (laughs) Um, I want to make sure that the process that's increasing my salary completes before the process that increases the tax assessment (laughs) increases, right? So they have to take turns. So DB2 does that with a process called locking. Right? The process that's updating the salary will take a lock on the row, and then the tax process will wait until that other lock is released before it takes, uh, takes effect. So if I have a single DB2 in one server, that's the end of the conversation. Right? I have locking. DB2 calls the lock manager, which is named the IRLM, to handle these locks. If I have a big DB2 that's existing on multiple servers in a data-sharing environment, I have to manage locking across each of those servers. So now I take advantage of the coupling facility, which is part of the parallel sysplex infrastructure, mm-hmm. so that I can manage global locking because the same rules still apply. I'm running on this server. You're running on that server. We're both going after the same row to update it. One of us gets there first. The other one gets there second. And so the lock structure is a way to handle global concurrency in a data-sharing environment. And it's not a failure or the end of the world. If one process tries to get there and it's locked, it just waits until it's its turn. It will either wait for, until it's its turn or it will time out if it has to wait too long. Okay. And if it times out, then the program, the programmer will have to say, I recognize the return code. Okay, that was a timeout. I'm going to retry the operation. Right. So I have uh, friends that are DBAs. They seem to spend a lot of time talking about buffer pools. Why is that? So DB2 operates on data, and the data always resides on disk, right? That's the, the, the home of the data. But if you want to do something to the data, you have to bring the data into memory so you can operate on it. This has been true from the beginning mm-hmm. when data lived on punch cards. You still had to read it in to memory for the CPU to do anything. It's more efficient if you can cache the data 
and keep it in memory for a long period of time. And the way DB2 does that is by allocating pools where the data resides, hopefully for long periods of time. Um, particular rows or columns that are not accessed frequently will show into the buffer pool and then disappear and won't be seen again. But the ones that are used more regularly will stick around for a long time. And the bigger you can make the buffer pools, the longer they'll stay, the fewer IOs you will have to do, and therefore the faster the process will run. So with the, with the new uh, Z14, because it has so much memory, is, is the idea that I'm going to make huge buffer pools and throw all my data in there and, and never go to disk ever, ever? Never. So the, the, the never going to disk ever depends on how much data you have. The Z14 uh, has 30 terabytes of real memory available to the entire box, but one ZOSL park can only handle four terabytes of real. Mm -hmm. And that four terabytes of real is, has to be shared among everybody. DB2 doesn't get all of it, unfortunately. <laughs> but since DB2 is friendly and cooperative, DB2 will only take a lot of it. <laughs> so, so out of the, let's say, three terabytes that DB2 wants to have, DB2 can allocate buffer pools that accumulate up to somewhere in that three terabyte range realistically, but they can actually define larger amounts, right? It's just there's only that much real, and anything beyond that is going to require either paging or some sort of other I.O. But to the extent that I can make my buffer pools really large and take advantage of all of the, the terabytes of real memory, yes, I can reduce my, my I.O. and get better performance. If my database is only two terabytes in size, I can keep it all in memory. Mm -hmm. I would still have it backed up to disk, right, just in case someone pulled the plug or did something unfortunate. <laughs> but Frank, <laughs> why are you looking at me? <laughs> but there are plenty of shops that I work with that have terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data. They cannot possibly get it all into even the four terabytes that are available on a ZOSL bar today. Now, I anticipate in the future the ZOS will lift the four terabyte restriction and that the hardware will increase beyond 30 of what you can put on one box. But, of course, I don't know what's going on there, so I can't <laughs> pre-announce anything. Although it would be kind of weird if we went backwards. <laughs> it would be weird, yes. I'm reasonably sure we won't go backwards. Right. The new Z15 with 18 kilobytes of storage. <laughs> But it's funny, though. I mean, if you if you look back, um, the fact that mainframers have always been oh, yeah. much more conscious of the amount of space that they are using, that they'll get a lot more out of that space than uh, on a lot of other platforms where programmers aren't thinking about, gee, I've only got, right. you know, 8K to do stuff. Maybe I should be careful. Yeah, make everything, uh, you know. 512 character Varkar, you know, <laughs> when you only need a byte. <laughs> is is that something that uh, mainframe DBAs do a lot as well, is, is really trying to identify what the data is going to look like so that I can have as tight a table as possible? Or is that is that not the is way less of do an that? issue? So the, the, the issue about uh, limits, right, limitations – uh, size of columns, a number of columns in a table, number of tables in a database, all of those limits exist. Very few customers run into them. Hmm. Um, 
but they they do occasionally. So, for example, um, I was recently working with a customer who had an issue because the length of the name of a column in DB2 on ZOS is shorter than the length of the name of a column on DB2 on other platforms. So if the program is being written on another platform, like a one-person use platform, Mm -hmm. and then ported up to Z so it can handle thousands and thousands of concurrent users, if they aren't paying attention, they're going to have a column name that's too long to fit in the restriction on DB2 on Z. And the DB2 development team constantly gets requests for enhancements to relieve limitations, and the length of the name of a column is one of those that they have been asked to remove that restriction. So kind of make like an 80 bajillion character? Okay. (laughs) Now, but it goes back to for years we were able to name a column in 16 characters uniquely. That means your column name has some very interesting characters in it to be unique. (laughs) If you're on another platform that has a 256 character limit, you can say exactly what that column name is. This is the column that has all of the things in it that I really care about. It's less than 256 characters. It's a ridiculous name for a column, (laughs) but you can do that. And you can have lots of ridiculously named columns. If If you're limited... We're no longer limited to 60, 16, but if you still have a relatively short limit, you have to be efficient in how you name your columns. So, yes, DBAs do care about these sorts of things so that they can stay within the limits, the various limits that exist in DB2. Well, Twitter just went up to 288 characters, so <laughs> I'm just keeping up with that. <laughs> So let's say we're working with with a, a customer and they have like, you know, that that tons of data. What was it fifty sextillion you know tables? I think you mentioned that's on record. Uh, <laughs> that it's it's just a ton of data, especially if some of it is is out to disk. Um, I imagine that some queries might take minutes or hours, whatever, to to get done, especially under load. Um, what are companies doing to to kind of speed up those queries so they can be a little more um, close to real time? So that's a very interesting question. For some customers, the the choice is to use a a plugin, if you will, to DB2 called the IBM DB2 Analytics Accelerator, which is a separate piece of hardware that plugs in inside the actual Z network, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it, you think of it as another box that's part of that server. It's within DB2's control, and it looks to DB2 like another address space. And it gives the optimizer, the DB2 optimizer, which figures out how, how, what's the best way to go about answering this query. It gives it another option. What we do with the analytics accelerator is we load vast amounts of data out there, and then we have a series of, basically broken down into a, a, a series of small processors, but many, many, many processors. So they can go and do laborious work against large amounts of data really all in parallel quickly to get an answer back. The, the difficulty being is if I have lots and lots of data and I have to filter through to get specific columns and rows, that's a lot of work. Right. And if I have a whole bunch of little processors looking at little parts of the data all in parallel, I can get the answer back really quickly. So by taking a bunch of processors in parallel in the accelerator, I can take queries that companies found were running in days or weeks or never ending wow. and get them back in minutes or seconds. 
Wow. So our one of our reference account in the health insurance industry did just that. They took queries, some of which never ended, and got them back in a sixtieth or a hundredth or a thousandth of the time wow. by using an accelerator. I remember the um, when we were doing some tests with this, we uh, we brought in uh, at the time was a Natiza box, and uh, our, our DV two administrator he had a. Um, uh, a workload that used to take, you know, it was the benchmark workload used to take like an hour or something like that to finish. Uh, we loaded everything onto the, onto the box and, you know, ran the query and it came back right away. And when you, when you work at a, a console, something <laughs> that comes back right away, you assume something, something went wrong. wrong. Right. And RC goes, 8 or RC 12. Yeah. Right. He's like, this stupid thing isn't working right. I did everything right. What's wrong? And we started to look at it and we said, it says it completed correctly. Said, no, it's impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> and no, it it actually ran correctly. So that was a it's like wow, that's game changing. <laughs> yes, there's there's been a lot of that happening in the last few years. Um, the the Natiza technology was was the first step, and we've even making a step. We've made a step beyond that now with the IBM DB2 Analytics Accelerator version seven, uh-huh. uh, which is no longer based on Natiza technology, but it still has the same concept. Right, you lash together a bunch of processes running in parallel to be able to take large quantities of data and dig through and find the pieces that you need. And because of the, the parallel nature, you get the answer much more quickly. And the neat thing about all this stuff is the programmer doesn't have to do anything, right? The program stays exactly the same. It's it's the underlying infrastructure that says, oh, I can take advantage of this stuff. Let me do this with it and return very quickly. Correct. And it's just, really, it's an extension of what DB2 and other subsystems in the MVS and ZOS space have been doing over time. I remember when we introduced the first dyadic, the first two-processor machine, Mm. and then we came out with a four-processor machine, and boy, was that exciting. (laughs) And now we have hundreds of processors, right, some of which customers configure, some of which are just buried in the machine. And the concept now is to allow DB2 or any of the other subsystems to get those processors running on its behalf in parallel to do complex tasks much more quickly. And all the Accelerate is is an extension of that concept. So uh, let's pretend you're Ginny for a day. <laughs> uh where would you take DB2? Where where would be the next thing that you'd want to see? So I wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> <laughs> would you maybe make the 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 D lowercase and the B uppercase, or spell out the two with Roman numerals? I, I have gotten. A lot. I'll ignore all the IBM feedback I've gotten. I've gotten a lot of customers who are confused by changing the spelling <laughs> of DB2. But if I were Ginny for a day, I wouldn't focus on spelling DB2. Um, what I would focus on is making sure that people understood the combination of the performance, the security, the availability, and the scalability that DB2 on the parallel syspex provides for all of our customers, not just the big ones, but even the small ones can take advantage of these capabilities so that they can be as close as, as they build their shop to being 24 by 7. Because almost everyone, almost every customer I work with, even the small ones, has demands that says, I cannot be down. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be able to take advantage of this. And if I were 
Ginny Forday, that's what I would focus on is is the next incremental piece and making sure the customers understand this is the way to go if you really want to be 24 by 7. So it's not good enough just to have a database. This is an area where DB2 can uh, show superiority. DB2 can show superiority in getting to the 24 by 7 for enterprise applications. Absolutely. There's your bumper sticker right there. <laughs> I want to thank you, Mark. This has been awesome. Yeah, thank you thank very you. much. Well, thank you for having me. And thus concludes our first live recording at IBM Systems Technical University. Um, want to thank everyone for their, their ratings and feedback. And uh, glad to see everyone out there on the Twitter giving us love. Right. And don't forget, we keep watching the mainframe subreddit slash r slash mainframe. And you can get a hold of us at contact at terminaltalk.net and also on the Twitter sphere at Terminal Talk. By the way, if you run, run into us in person, we have stickers now. <laughs> thanks, we'll, Scott. We'll give them. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. And we'll give them to pretty much anybody who asks. Yeah. Preference to, uh, to guests, though. <laughs> That's how you're getting paid for this. <laughs> I hope Frank cleared that with you. Old Man Charlie, please. <laughs> You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence signing off. <laughs>